Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So we're going to pick up uh, week six of our series called Promises, Promises. We're looking in this series at promises from God, promises from the Bible. What we're going to do today is we're actually going to look at what I think is one of the main objections that people have to faith. One main reason people sometimes reject God. And there are lots of reasons that people don't put their faith in God or people reject God. You know, some people are like, well, I'm just fine on my own. I'm okay without him interfering or meddling. I'm fine. And that's maybe just a reason people have. Nothing against him, but I'm okay. Or some people would say, you know, eventually uh, when, I get, when I get there, when I get ready, when everything's just right, then I'll, you know, do the whole God thing, the whole faith thing. You know, eventually I'll get there. People sometimes will say that. Or sometimes people reject faith because they're like, I just know it's not going to be fun, even though two of the events that we're doing from our church have the word fun included in them, right? I just don't buy that, you know. It's, it's not the kind of fun I want to have. God's going to cramp my style. God's going to boss me around. I have enough people in charge of my life. I have enough rules. No thank you, ma'am. It's uh, no, no, no thank you, right? Uh, so those are some re- objections people have to faith. But I think one of the main ones, and this is the one we're going to focus on today, one main objection I think uh, people have to faith is this idea of bad things happening to good people. Some of it, you can just stop right there with bad things happening, period. People are like, if God's so good, why does he allow that? That's what we're going to talk about today. Okay, If God's so good, why does he allow blank to happen? Why did he allow this to happen? Why didn't he stop this from happening? Where was he when I needed him? What's the purpose of all of this? Why am I suffering? Why does so much of the world seem to suffer compared to my standard of living? Why do they live in abject poverty? Uh, Literally, a third of the world lives on two dollars a day or less. That doesn't seem like a loving God who provides for his creation. What's the deal? Why do bad things happen to good people? And If we're honest, sometimes we're tempted to give like cheap words in response to that objection, a serious objection, or really just empty platitudes. You know, sometimes if we're not careful, we'll say, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's not a Bible verse. It's a Kelly Clarkson song, you know. (laughs) So maybe not the best advice you want to give to people with a serious objection to faith and their suffering. Uh, You know, sometimes we will say it's darkest just before the dawn, I'm like, no, no, that's not how science works. (laughs) It's not. It's really dark in the middle of the night, and then it slowly, progressively gets lighter and lighter and lighter until the dawn appears. So that's not true at all. Or sometimes, and you might think this is in the Bible, it is not. This too shall pass. I thought, where is that? Well, it's not in there, right? That phrase is not actually in the text of the Bible. This too shall pass. If you find it and I missed it, please let me know and correct me, uh, but I didn't find it. Uh, I will say, though, that is really good advice for me whenever I have kidney stones. That's the promise that I hang on to. This, too, shall pass, you know. That's, but, yeah, but when it comes to people's real objections to faith, 
because of suffering, either their own or someone around them or just suffering in general, that's not really going to cut it. That's not really seriously answering that objection. So what I want to do instead is I do want to give some, a verse from the Bible that is a promise that I think can help us to answer this objection. Let me just give you a heads up. It's going to take us a long time today to get to the actual promise. Because what I want to do first is, is walk through a very familiar Bible story from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, that most of us probably know by heart. We're going to walk through the story of Joseph this morning and look and see how he actually lived out the promise that then we will reveal and get to and try to quickly apply with some questions that we can ask on what, what's the deal with suffering? If God's so good, why does this happen? If God's so great, why did this happen? If God's so powerful, why all of the blah in the world? Okay, so we're going to look at the story of Joseph today in the book of Genesis again, and, and, and a pretty exciting life uh, when you're on the outside of it, when you read it, uh, when you're put in his situation, maybe not, I wouldn't use the word exciting probably from his point of view, a very tumultuous, uh, up and down, uh, life full of suffering for a big portion of his young adult life. And really his suffering starts, uh, m- most of his suffering is due to no fault of his own. Let's just say that at the outset. And it obviously begins that way for sure, because Joseph's suffering, his 20-plus year journey of suffering here, uh, starts simply because his dad picked a favorite child. So if you want a a parenting lesson, I know we talked about parenting last week, if you want a parenting lesson, read the story of Joseph. Picking a favorite child and letting them know that they're a favorite, probably not a good idea. Uh, You can have one, just don't tell your children which one is the favorite, okay? That's the moral of the story to Joseph, the end, you're dismissed. But so Joseph just happens to be his father's favorite child, and his father makes that well known. He coddles him. He's overprotective of him. And as we know uh, very famously, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you know about the Technicolor dream coat, okay? Not only is that just a musical, that really happened. It's in the Bible. It's Genesis, okay? His father makes him this colorful robe, which would have been an expensive thing to make. A multicolored, dyed piece of a garment is going to be an expensive gift. And he doesn't have one for all 12 of his children. No, no, no. Just for the one. Just for Joseph. And so Joseph here is put in this position where now his brothers really don't like him very much. Brothers don't like each other anyway. But now they have a reason not to like him. But it's really his dad's fault, isn't it? It's not that Joseph made a mistake or that he sinned or that he did something terrible. He's paying the price. for No, no, it's like his dad messed up and he's going to pay the price because his brothers hate him so much they decide they're going to kill him. Like over a robe? Are you serious, guys? Like, I know this is jealousy is a big deal, but seriously, come on. They decide we're, we're going to kill him. And then one of them finally says, okay, wait, we maybe don't want to commit a crime Uh, and have blood on our hands. So instead, let's figure out what we're going to do. So they throw him into an empty well, basically, and they figure out what are we going to do. What just so happens as they're on their lunch break and their brother's down at the bottom of the well, help me get me out here. Uh, Like, la, 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 we don't hear you. Where's Joseph? I don't know. I haven't seen him lately, okay? They see a traveling caravan come by who are on their way to Egypt, and they decide, hey, let's make some coin here. Let's make a quick buck. So they sell their brother Joseph into slavery to this caravan. And then they're like, okay. So then they take the robe that they took, they dip it in animal's blood so they can tell their dad, oh no, an animal attacked your favorite son and he's dead and we didn't have anything to do with it, dad. Don't look at us. Nothing to see here. We wiped the fingerprints off. Uh, CSI is going to come. They're not going to find anything. Okay, this is like Dateline BC is what this is, okay? Not NBC, <laughs> Dateline BC. My wife who loves that show really liked that joke there. 
Anyway, that was not planned, but that's just, that's just how I roll, right? Anyway, let me just brag about myself a little bit more real quick. Okay. So Joseph is now on his way to Egypt as a slave sold by his brothers. The question is that we're talking about, why would God allow this to happen? Joseph did not really do anything wrong here. He's a victim of a crime from his own family. Why would God allow this kind of suffering to happen? And then when Joseph gets into Egypt, he's sold yet again. He's sold to a man named Potiphar, who is a pretty powerful guy. He says he's the captain of the guard of Egypt. He's pretty powerful, pretty influential, and he is a servant in Potiphar's house. And you would say, well, why, why would God cause Joseph to travel as a slave to a foreign land to be a slave to this Egyptian royal, basically, guard guy? What, what, what is the problem here? Where did God fail? But I want you to notice something. We're going to read a little bit of his story off and on. Let's read this. Genesis 39, starting at verse number 2. Watch what happens here. Even in this situation, even in this dark, desperate moment, here's what happens. Genesis 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. So notice, in this dark, difficult situation, God was still with Joseph. Even in the midst of what we would call suffering, slavery, uh, he was with Joseph. Even in this unfair situation, God was with Joseph. Even when he was abandoned by his own family, God was with Joseph. Even in a foreign land, as a slave, God was with Joseph. But not only that, it gets better than that for Joseph in this moment for a little while, right? Not only was God just with him, but God actually blessed him. You mean in his suffering there was blessing? Yes. In the midst of this crazy, uncontrollable situation that he can't figure out, he's got questions running through his mind, God blessed him? Yes. And it gets even better. Not only did God bless him, but through him, God blessed everyone around him. And then that, in in turn, blessed him even more. As he's like the perfect employee, we'll use a nice word there, right? Uh, As he's like the model slave in this home, everything he does works. Everything he does is perfect. Potiphar's like, hmm, let's put him in charge of everything and see if that ripple. And it does. It does. So he promotes him, basically out of nowhere, to you're in charge of everything everything I have. And again, captain of the guard, he's going to have a lot of stuff, a lot of possessions, a lot of wealth that he's now managing. God was with him, God blessed him, and God used him to be a blessing. But we know, if you know the story, that this quick rise from Joseph was followed by a quick fall, because there's a problem here. There's a monkey wrench about to go into this story, and it's Potiphar's wife, the woman of the house. The problem is, she gots the hots for Joe. 
and she tries to make advances on this slave boy, knowing he's really in no position to refuse my advances. Yet, Joseph did refuse the advances of Potiphar's wife. And he didn't use the excuse, well, I can't, or whatever. He didn't use the excuse, well, she won't tell anybody, you know. Like, he, he just did the right thing. But even in doing the right thing, he suffered even more. Because as he's refusing her advances, she's kind of spurned by him. And so in really an effort to show, make a power play, she falsely accuses him of trying to rape her. He happens to be, he's trying to avoid her as best he can. Like when you're over here, I'm going to be way over there, right? But one day he just can't help it. He's, he's in her vicinity. She reaches out to try to grab him. She grabs his cloak that he has on and he runs out, right? And she takes his cloak and so Joseph and cloaks, it's a bad combination for this guy, okay? First cloak got him sold. The second cloak's going to get him in prison because the wife has the cloak. She says, he came in here and tried to rape me. He tried to take advantage of me. And so what does Potiphar do? He's going to believe his wife, right? And so let's read on Genesis 39, 19. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained. Let's stop there for just a second. Again, we ask the question one more time, yet again, how could God allow this to happen? Why would God let injustice go unpunished? Why would, so he's falsely accused of a crime he did not commit, and there's no recourse for him. There's no courtroom he can go to. There's no judge who will hear his case. There's no, there's no ring doorbell video system in, in Potiphar's mansion that can show what actually happened. There, he can't hire a defense attorney to plead his case. It's just the slave man's word against the woman of the house. Guess who's going to win on that trip? Not Joseph. So he's falsely accused and imprisoned. Why would God allow that to happen? What is going on? What is God doing here? But there's a similar theme that we saw when he was sold into slavery. We see a theme. When he's thrown into prison, we see a similar theme. Let's look at it here. This is later on, Genesis 39, verse 20. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. You seeing a theme here? Seeing a theme here? So, even when falsely accused, wrongly imprisoned, God was with Joseph. Even though falsely accused, wrongly imprisoned, God blessed Joseph. Joseph, even in this suffering situation, this unfair situation, this dark season and moment in his life, God was with him and God blessed him and did the same thing he did the first time. Everything that Joseph did then blessed those around him. And even in this time in the prison, God even used Joseph in a powerful way that ended up paying off, but not right away. So soon after Joseph is thrown into this prison, uh, two of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who believes he's divine, right? Two of his main people are thrown into the prison with Joseph. One is the cupbearer to the king, or really what we would call probably the food taster. Uh, so he's, you know, first line of defense for Pharaoh here. He's thrown into prison, and also the head, the chief baker of Egypt is thrown into the prison. We don't really know why, but there they are all of a sudden with Joseph. And God gives an opportunity to use Joseph to bless other people, even in his suffering, even through this difficult ordeal. He gives Joseph an opportunity to shine. 
because both of these men have dreams, and they can't interpret the dreams. They don't know what they mean, and they are agonized by these dreams. But Joseph says, hey, I know what your dreams mean. God told me what your dreams mean. And so like, okay, let us know, Joe, what's going on? So the cupbearer has a dream. He says, in my dream, there was this vine with three branches on it, and there were grape clusters on these three branches. In my dream, Pharaoh took a cluster of grapes and squeezed them into his cup, and that's my dream. And Joseph says, well, that dream means in three days, three branches means three days. In three days, Pharaoh will restore you to your former position. Everything's going to be great. He's like, hey, I like that. I like this guy. This, is, this guy's pretty cool, right? And so Joseph says, hey, would you do me a solid, man? When that happens, because it will, uh, when that happens, would you like, get me out of here? Would you put in a good word to the big guy, Pharaoh, and tell him, hey, there's this really cool guy here. You should find a job for him. He's falsely accused of a crime at Potiphar's house. You know, tell my story. Help me out. And the guy says, oh, sure, no problem, right? We'll get back to him in a second. So the second other guy in the, the cellmate, right, is the baker. The baker has a similar dream. He says, in my dream, there were three baskets of bread on top of my head, and the birds came and ate all of the bread out of these baskets. What does this dream mean? And Joseph said, well, it's similar, yet you're not going to like how it ends. He says, the three baskets are three days. In three days, you'll be, you'll be taken out of the prison. However, Pharaoh will have you killed, and the birds will eat the flesh off of your body. That's what this dream means. And the baker's like, I don't like this guy. I don't know what you saw in him, cupbearer, but I'm not a big fan. Not a bi- but here's the thing. Both dreams come true. Three days' time, both men are released from prison. One guy's restored, the cupbearer, the baker. Not so much. And so, but both dreams come true. And so, remember, God remembered Joseph in the prison. God blessed Joseph in the prison. God used Joseph in the prison. But the other guy that said he would remember Joseph did not. Genesis 40, 23 says, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Then chapter 41 starts this way. Two full years later, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing on the bank of the Nile River. So again, Joseph's in the prison for false reasons. He should not be there. And when, he, when God comes through for him and shows up in a mighty way to interpret these men's dreams, one of them makes just a flippant promise. Yeah, I'll remember you, no problem. We're buds, we're bros, we're, we're cellmates for life, man. You know, I'll never let you down. And he just totally forgets about him as soon as he's out. And it says he suffers for two more years. Same question I'll ask again. Why would God allow Joseph to suffer? Why would God be so good to him in this little pocket here and a little pocket there? And then the rest of this experience for years is agony, is torture, is mistreatment, is cruelty, is darkness, is injustice. Why would God allow this to happen? But then it says in chapter 41, two years later, Pharaoh now has two dreams. And so when Pharaoh has these dreams, the cupbearer suddenly is like, oh, yeah, that's right. There was a dude that I met. Where did I meet? Oh, yeah, when I was in prison two years ago, I met a guy who he can interpret dreams. His God gives him power to interpret dreams. Maybe we should talk to him because Pharaoh's had these dreams. It's keeping him up at night. It's even, I don't know how he has dreams, but he stays up at night. But anyway, uh, so that's what happens. It just, it just he just can't handle it. What does this mean? I know it means something. I don't think it's good. I need to know what's going to happen. I need to know what this dream means. And none of his guys can interpret it. No one, they're all just baffled. So then the cupbearer says, hey, there's a dude in the cell over there. Uh, I think he can probably help you out. 
So this is Joseph's chance, right? This is his moment. All these years of suffering maybe will be ended. Or if he's wrong, then they'll probably be killed. Either way, he's going to be out of his misery at one, one way or another, right? So then Joseph is brought before Pharaoh, and he tells him his two dreams. He said, here's my two dreams. In my first dream, there were seven fat, healthy cows standing and grazing in, in uh, the grass. And then all of a sudden up behind them, seven scrawny, sick cows come and eat the seven healthy cows. In my second dream, seven healthy grains, uh, stalks of grain grow in the grass, in the field. And then behind them, seven thin, nearly dead stalks of grain consume the seven healthy ones. What do these dreams mean? And Joseph said, well, actually, it's the same meaning for both dreams. I'll tell you what God says. God says the next seven years for the region are going to be years of plenty, years of abundance. And then the seven years after that are going to be famine, drought, no crops, no food. It's going to be bad. So now Joseph takes a chance here. He's now interpreted the dreams, but he goes one step further in faith, I think, to then give him, here's what you should do with this information. They already didn't ask, what should I do? He said, tell me what they mean. He told them, but they said, here's, here's what God says you should do. In the next seven years, you need to store up and save all the extra grain, all the extra crops, build barns, build buildings, save it for the years where we're not going to have anything. So then we will, we will survive the seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh's like, hmm, that sounds like a really good plan. I like what you're saying, Joe. I really like this. So what does Pharaoh do? Genesis 41, 37 it says, Pharaoh, or Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God's revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You'll be in charge. Here, see the theme again? You'll be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a higher rank than yours. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. It had a dollar sign on it with diamonds too. Then he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for his second in command. And wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. Talk about a promotion. So Pharaoh, he's the, I mean, Potiphar, there it is. He's the slave the entry-level guy, he's quickly promoted to the head of the house until things fall apart. And then in prison, he's the new guy, you know, I don't want to say what happens right there, but anyway, so he's, he's the new guy there, and he gets promoted to head of everything, second in command. And then everything kind of falls apart again because he's forgotten and rots in jail even longer. And then he gets his one shot. He takes a little step of faith here by giving, here's what you should do with this information. And then the promotion is you're second in command to everyone. Like even Potiphar. Think about that. He's over Potiphar now. As I'm sure he's like, what's up, dude? What's up, pot? Yo, kneel! You know, he's probably, when he sees him, he tells him to kneel just for fun, just because he can now, you know? Uh, so that's what he does. So 
so th- this is what happens. From the pit to the prison to the palace, here's the thing. This is about a 13-year journey. So it's a, lo- a lot of suffering for a long time, a lot of darkness, a lot of questions. A lot. I'm sure Joseph's probably asking the question that we've been ask- asking several times, why would God allow this? Why would God allow suffering, injustice? Why would he allow the evil people to wreck my life? What's going on here? And then as Joseph predicted correctly in the dreams, the next seven years are the best Egypt had ever seen. I mean, crops double, triple, quadruple what they normally were. And so they build these barns, they build these facilities to house all this extra grain, all these extra crops. And then after those seven years, but guess what? The next day after the seventh year is over, year number eight, it, it's gone. It dries up. Nothing will grow, no rain, nothing, no harvest. So then... We're going to end his story here in just a second. And here, here's the twist that we're all, we all love, right? So about the second year of the famine, guess who shows up to make Joseph a visit? His brothers, who 20 years ago sold him to a traveling caravan in, into slavery. They show up asking for food, and they approach the vice pharaoh. And they don't know it's him, right? This was 20 years ago. He's grown. He looks different. He looks like an Egyptian now. They have no reason to even believe he's alive. And so they come forward to Joseph, and they beg for mercy. They beg for grain to take back home. And to make a long story short, you need to read if you haven't. He kind of messes with his brothers a little bit. You know, he plays some tricks on them. He gets them really scared, really nervous. It's, it's like the biggest punk you've ever seen in your life. It's amazing. So if you're not familiar, read it, Genesis first 41 through 44 or whatever. So then he does this for a while, and then he just can't help it anymore. He, he just has to let him know, okay, gotcha, it's me, it's your bro, it's Joseph, right? So here's what he does, Genesis 45, verse 3. But not, not only does he reveal himself, I think he reveals the answer, his answer, to the question we've been asking today. Why would God allow all this suffering to happen? Why would he do that? Genesis 45, verse 3. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them, so they came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. Here's what he says. Listen to this. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And he says it again, God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. He says it three times. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. So in Joseph revealing himself, he reveals who he believes God to be as well. He, he's like, no, there, there was a bigger plan at work than what you thought would just get, get rid of our little scrawny, annoying kid brother. It was more than just injustice being done to me. There was more to my suffering than just suffering. There was more to my pain than just pain. There, it wasn't that even he did a lot of anything wrong to get into the trouble he was in. He wasn't paying a penalty for sin. He wasn't, you know... Ma- God wasn't evening things up with him. For, it's just that things happened to him that were awful and terrible, yet he saw God had a plan through all of that. God had a plan. God led me here. Now, he says it here, but then a few years later, their dad dies, and then his brothers get a little concerned. Because, like, you were just being nice because dad was there. 
You were just being nice because you didn't want to embarrass yourself in front of dad. Now that he's dead, you're going to let us have it. But he doesn't do that. What he does actually is he doubles down on his statement that he made several years before. Let's read one more verse, then we'll start to apply this to our lives here and now. Genesis 50, 19 and 20. Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. So I haven't really said what the promise is, even though it's been on the screen. We're talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly promise. That's what we're talking about today. So Joseph believed today's promise that we're going to read in just a second. We're going to get there. Joseph believed this promise before it was even ever written down. Because Paul writes this promise in the book of Romans a couple thousand years after, three, four thousand years after Joseph was alive. Yet he knew the promise, he believed the promise because he lived out this promise. So what is the good, bad, and ugly promise? Here's what it is. Romans 8, 28. Paul writes, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Read that again. We've waited so long to get here. Let's read it again. Paul says, And we know, not we think or I hope, right? We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. There's three keys to this promise that we're going to focus on as we close here in just a minute. We're just going to ask four questions that I want us to internalize with our own suffering or our own view of suffering in general to help us to maybe get past this obstacle if it's one that we have or one to wrestle with and think through as we sometimes struggle. Because maybe right now life's okay and life's fine. And you're, you're, but here's the thing. Eventually, you know the hammer's going to drop, right? You know the other shoe's going to drop. You know eventually something will happen, whether it is a mistake that you make and you get yourself in an impossible situation or life just throws a curveball at you or something that you can't control happens that is awful and terrible. We just know that's how life works. And so maybe you're not there, but you will be. These are questions that we want to ask. So this promise applies in the good, the bad, and the ugly, because God works all things for good according to his purpose. That's the the main idea here. So here's four questions I want us to wrestle with for just a minute here as we close. Four questions to ask in order to live out this promise. Well, how do I know? Paul says we know. How do I know that God works everything out for good If I love God and I'm called according to his purpose, how do I know that? How can I be assured of that as Joseph was even before this promise was ever written down by Paul? Four questions to ask. Number one, even in your suffering, will you sense God's presence? Notice it says, we know that God works everything out. So the approach to life is not that everything will work out. It's that God works everything out out. Those are two very different ways of living. So when it comes to life, I don't leave my life to chance. I give my life to God. So two different things, two totally different ways of life. I don't just, it's not just going to all work out in the end. No, no, no. It's all going to be terrible in the end, right? That's, that's the reality of life. It's going to be awful for most of our existence, right? But we know that God works everything out for good. So I'm not going to leave my life to chance. I'm going to give my life to God. I'm sure Joseph asked, if we can get into his psyche, he's probably asking why a lot. Why as a teenager did my brother sell me into slavery? Why 
this master that I serve faithfully and, and God blessed him through me. Why did, why did he just take his wife's work? Why didn't he even ask me? Why didn't he come to me? I thought we had like this thing going, you know? Why, why am I in prison for so many years? Why did the guy that said he was going to remember me, why did he forget about me? Why is everybody abandoning me? Why is everybody quitting on me? Why is everybody leaving? What's going on? But we read that in every situation, God was with Joseph. In the pit, God was with him. In Potiphar's house, God was with him. In the prison, God was with him. In the palace, God was with him every step on his journey. So here's when we, will we sense God's presence. So you may ask God why from time to time, but you never have to ask him where. Where are you? Because he's always there. He's always with you. Even when you don't sense it, will you push a little harder to maybe sense him? Will you by faith say, okay, God, I don't really know that I sent you, but by faith, I know that you're there. You work everything out. You never leave, never forsake. That's another promise that we may, we may get to before the series is over. We may ask why. We don't have to ask God where he is. He's always with us. Here's a second question to apply this idea of seeing God through suffering. Is, will you see God's blessing? Because remember, let's take it one step further. It's not just that God was with Joseph, but every step of the way, God blessed him. Even from the pit to being sold, he was sold to a, a pretty good master, right? We would agree he got into a, a, a pretty bad situation, but the best of the worst, if you want to see it that way, it wasn't like he was beaten or mistreated that we read of. The guy seemed to have some sort of rapport with him, and then he noticed his work and, and accelerated his promotion. So he, even in this terrible situation, he's kind of got the best of the worst. Same thing in the prison. Even in the prison, God blessed him. Even in the, and especially when it came to his opportunity in the palace before Pharaoh, God absolutely blessed him. He gave him insight, not just to interpret the dream, but to know what to do with that information. So God blessed him. You'd say, well, wait, he was sold by his brothers. He was falsely accused of a terrible crime. He was in prison for many years on, the, on that basis, and then he was forgotten about to be in there longer. How is God blessing him? Well, we just explained that. It's God's favor even in that darkness that God had on his life. It's these sort of silver lining things that happened with Joseph that I think that if we look even in our darkest situation, we can see how God might be blessing us in some ways. Let me just give you a few examples here. Maybe, uh, you know, a, a job layoff, that's a dark season. That's a terrible uh, thing. But what if that changes the way that we view money and possessions? What if we really buckle down and we end up, in the end, we, you know, some, then something opens up and then we find out, wow, I'm way better off financially than I was even before because that dark situation made me change everything about how I viewed stuff. Maybe I, I saw I didn't need as much. Maybe I saw things that I can cut back on. Maybe, so even the dark thing can have, can, we can see God's blessing in that. Maybe a certain health scare will cause us to change certain health habits that we're like, ooh, that was a really scary thing there, but it got the attention that I needed to change certain things, and now I'm healthier than I've been in years. Again, the dark things can bring about God's blessing. Um, even certain relationships that are sort of fracturing in one area that may cause other relationships to grow stronger to help us get through that dark moment. I'm going to lean on these other people who do have my back to, to help me kind of navigate this really dark moment or this awful, unhealthy relationship. 
They're going to give me strength, encouragement, and wisdom that I need to get through this dark time. That may be God's blessing even in a dark moment. Or maybe we see that as one part of our, in a similar way, as, God, as, as one part of our life is just falling apart, we see God increasing another area of life over here, and we're like, hmm, if I could focus less on this that I can't control and don't understand and praise God for this, that will really help me to see God's blessing even in times of darkness and suffering. So will we see God's blessing? And it's easier said than done, but we have to say it and do it. The third question is, not just will we see God's blessing, but will we be God's blessing? Even in suffering, just like Joseph was. Joseph, not only was he blessed, but he was a blessing. Both Potiphar and the jailer, it says the same description at the end of those stories. They didn't worry about anything because they left him in charge and knew he'd take care of it. That's a blessing to them. They don't have to micromanage Joseph because they know he's, he's going to handle it. We're going to be better off with him than with me, so just, let's just let him do it. Even to the cupbearer in the prison, he gave him hope. Interpreting his dream gave him hope. He was a blessing to that man. And then, obviously, at the very end, to Pharaoh, he gave Pharaoh the plan that saved a nation, that then saved a region from an incredible seven-year famine. He was not just blessed, but he was a blessing. Now, for us, this is all about attitude. It's all about perspective in many ways. How can I be a blessing when I'm suffering? We can, we just have to find a way to do that. Let me give you two examples from our church. Now, one, one person's not here, but both these people are very open about their story, so I'm, I'm okay to share, I'm not going to share details, but just their story. So, and, and the other one's downstairs. So, Mary Alice, I don't know if you know, she's been diagnosed with cancer for a couple of years now. But if you talk to her, you would never know that she's suffering, right? She's like the most positive person I've ever met. And she's using this personal time of darkness to serve. She's serving all the time. She's volunteering all, that's why she's, she, this weekend, she's volunteering. She does things for the chiefs all the time. She volunteers at a hospice house. She does all sorts of things, even though she's got this diagnosis that is not good. She's in sort of later stages of this di- cancer diagnosis. So in this suffering, she has found a way to be a blessing. She's not sitting at home crying about it. She's not worrying about it. She knows that God, she, just like Joseph, God works all things for good. So while I've got breath in my body, I've got purpose for my life. So that's someone that we know personally living this out. The other person, James, who's downstairs with our 1C kids today, about six months ago, he received a diagnosis of ALS. There's a history of that in their family. And so he knows what his future in a few years may look like. Yet, he's now basically giving his life to raise awareness to this terrible disease. He's not just saying, oh, boo-hoo, this is terrible. Again, you talk to him, he's positive, he's upbeat, he's full of faith, and he's using his cursing to be a blessing, right? He's using his negative experience to help out others around him, to raise awareness to this disease, try to raise funding to find a cure. Like he's using the pain to bless other people. It's possible, even through suffering, to still be a blessing. But what you see the common theme here, and the same with Joseph, it doesn't happen on its own. It doesn't just, we don't just become, it's not like I can have this, you know, shoot my fingers out and God will bless people. I'm like, no, no, I have to make the effort. I have to not wallow in self-pity over my suffering, although it hurts and it's hard and it's terrible and it's unfair. Yes, I don't, I'm not going to, if I focus on that, I'm not going to help anybody. So if I can focus on how I can help others and be a blessing, that's what really is going to matter in the end. 
Will we be God's blessing? And the fourth question we want to ask as we close this is this. Will you search out God's purpose? Remember, Romans 8, 28, it says, God causes everything to work for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's what Joseph said. God sent me here ahead of you. You thought you were dumping me, right? But God sent me. You thought you were getting rid of a problem, but God was setting up a huge solution for millions of people. It's his purpose. So the proper approach to all of life really is going to get us through this, okay? Because the proper approach to life is all of my life is God's, right? The victories are not mine, they're his. The, the good times are not mine, they're his. And then also then the, the, the valleys, the negative times, the suffering, the torture, the agony, the pain, the discomfort, the mistreatment, that's his too. I'm going to give that to him as well. So we talk about God's purpose. Think about this. Joseph did not see or at least articulate this grand purpose God had for over 20 years after his troubles began. So sometimes we get in too big of a hurry. God, what are you up to? What are you doing? And this thing just started this weekend, you know? This tragedy just happened last week. We just got a diagnosis Friday, and we're like, okay, God, what's the master plan? I'm freaking out. It's like Joseph had to wait over 20 years before he worked through all the stuff. Oh, wow, God did that to make this happen, to cause that to happen, to get me to where I am now. It took two decades or more. For, it took really 22 years from the time his brothers threw him into the pit to the time he reveals himself for him to come to this realization. But he did come to the realization. He did see God's purpose working even through his suffering. And maybe he didn't always find that answer satisfactory. Because, again, I understand, even in trying to explain this promise to answer this objection, sometimes we're like, that's just not good enough for me right now. Like, I need more than that. And that, that's, all, that's the best we can do is what God says. That's all we can do is live by faith. That's all we can do is see how God expresses it himself. So even in those moments where this answer is not quite enough, that's where faith sort of has to kick in if we're a person of faith. And if we're not, that's what faith is. That's what faith is. I don't know why. I don't have the answer. I don't see the reasoning. I don't see the puzzle pieces coming together. But again, we know God works all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So that discovery might take a while. It may be a grind. It may be a few years or decades. But in the end, it means that as we look back, we can in some way connect the dots to see that God was there all along, blessing all along, not only us, but others all along. Because life happens, stuff happens, bad things do happen to good people. But in the midst of all of that, we have this promise that God is with us, he is blessing us, he's working behind the scenes to fulfill ultimately his purpose. That is the good, the bad, and the ugly promise.